Hey guys, John Polamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, September 12th, 2020, and this is the weekly market update. So in this week's reality check, I want to talk about the change in commentary and opinion we're seeing as it regards to inflation. And we're seeing a chorus of money managers, respected financial people coming out saying they are nervous or worried about a switch from disinflation to inflation. The first thing I want to say is with all the people coming out and talking about this, I'm wondering if it's too much of a bandwagon. I mean, I was calling for inflation and inflationary policies because of the debt loads we had. And now we've got everybody and his brother out there saying the same thing. So I was early, of course. I'm early most of the time. But I'm just I'm just a little bit nervous about that. But anyways, here's uh, Stan Druckenmiller. They had him on CNBC. I'll be putting links to all of most of this stuff in the show notes. He's a big-time money manager, pretty successful guy. He said, uh, for the first time in a long time, I'm actually worried about inflation. He termed the Fed's current policy dangerous. Well, of course it is. I mean, they're creating money out of thin air. The Treasury is to buy Treasury bonds. The Treasury is taking the money and just, you know, spending it into the economy. So Treasury is also in cahoots with the Fed, and we've talked about this before, I actually saw somebody else say this, and I remember I was chastised when I said this several months ago, that the Fed and the Treasury have now fused themselves together in uh, against what are the laws of this country and are buying assets in the open market with the special purpose vehicles. But I'm not going to get into that. Suffice to say... Yes, their current policy is dangerous, especially considering the fact that this coronavirus um, self-inflicted economic disaster is now, they're trying to counteract it by just spending money that they don't have. So yes, it has the potential to be inflationary. Director Miller goes on to say, I think we could easily see 5 to 10% inflation in the next four or five years said Druckenmiller, who now runs his own family office, created after he shuttered his Duquesne Capital hedge fund. Fed Chairman Jerome Powell, Druckenmiller lamented, quote, created this massive asset bubble. Well, of course he did. He has no choice. What else are they going to do? Have a deflationary collapse? I mean, you will have civil war if that happens. You'll have people dying in the streets. They're not going to do that. We are in a situation. We are at a time and place. This was going going to happen regardless of COVID. COVID was the the pin that popped the bubble, as I've said before. It's just the catalyst to what was already happening. And what we had was, you know, decade and t- decade and decade of built-up debt at the government, corporate, and personal levels, well, mostly the corporate and the government levels. And now you have this bubble economy that's been popped by the COVID virus, and now we're in this situation. And yes, I, I, 
we're in a situation where the debt cannot be paid back, the interest cannot be paid. We are in a zero interest rate environment. And you're going to have a situation where interest rates are going to be kept low for a long period of time. And they're hopefully going to try to get inflation up above the rate of, inf of, of interest rates. So you have a negative interest rate. And that way you inflate the debt away. This is not the first time that the U.S. government has done this. They did it after World War II. So this is a policy. So get ready for it. We go on. Alan Greenspan. They wheeled him out of the crypt. I mean, the guy did not look good. He's probably about 90-something years old, but he, they wheeled him out to CNBC also. My overall view is that the inflation outlook is unfortunately negative, and that's essentially the result of entitlements crowding out private investment and productivity growth. Well, this is interesting because I've said this before in other videos. Uh, Ron Paul, who used to be a congressman that used to, he was very against the Fed and some of the things they were doing, and this is going back, like 20 years or 25 years. And when Alan Greenspan would come to Congress to give testimony, I mean, Ron Paul actually understood economics. He's an Austrian economist or studied Austrian um, theory. He was a doctor. He was an obstetrician, actually. But he's a pretty smart guy, and he used to just put it to Alan Greenspan. He asked him one time, you know, about entitlements and asked them about the unsustainable nature of those entitlements. And I remember Greenspan saying, yes, I have no doubt as long as the United States dollar is the reserve currency of the world that we can create, he even said it back then, like Jerome Powell, he said, we have a printing press and we can create as many dollars as we need to to pay our obligations. However, cannot guarantee the value of those printed dollars. I mean, this is like basic 101 economics. This is not hard to understand. And the shift is coming. It's happening as we speak. Um, like I said, COVID just accelerated what was going to happen anyways. So it doesn't necessarily mean we're going to have hyperinflation. We're not going to have a Peter Schiff collapse. What we're going to have, more than likely, is a period, sustained period, of negative interest rates and higher than normal inflation. And that's going to give the opportunity for the nominal value of the debt to just be paid back. They'll pay it back with cheaper dollars. This is nothing new. It's nothing uh, that hasn't been done before in the United States itself and many other countries throughout history. Now, it does have the potential to get away. And when you start talking about MMT and you start politicizing money creation and these things so that you can have a better world or you can address historical um, uh, issues or whatever these goofy politicians are going to come up with, depending on who's in office, then you, you could have the, p the potential for it to get away. But this is going to take more than a day or two. It's going to take more than a year or two. But I think, you know, the bottom's probably in on the disinflation and deflation. And the amount of money that has to be created now just to try to get things going again, this will not be good for, you know, growth, there's a whole bunch of negative things that, are gonna, that can happen because of this. So what I'm trying to do is just let you know that there's a lot of people talking about this. It's garnering a lot of interest. Let's look at you know what people are actually doing. Warren Buffett, who many people consider the greatest investor to ever walk the face of the earth. What's he been doing? Let's not listen to what people say. What is Berkshire Hathaway doing? Well, they're buying hard assets. They're buying companies that will benefit from an inflationary environment. For example... 
Everybody knows that, uh, you know, several weeks ago we talked about it. The Berkshire Hathaway bought a, you know, pretty decent stake in Barrick Gold. Well, why are you buying gold if you think there's going to be disinflation? Buffett poo-pooed gold. Now, I don't know if Buffett himself bought it. There's other people that work there now that do some investing too. They may have bought it. I don't know. Nevertheless, he is still the uh, chairman of the board there. He makes He's the front man. He's the one that does all the discussions with the media and with the public. So, you know, something's going on here. So it's not just Barrick Gold. You know, they bought Dominion Resources. Uh, it's a, you know, gas transmission and storage assets that are up in the Middle Atlantic area. These are hard assets. You're buying steel. You're buying, you're buying these, these things in the ground, okay? Um, another thing that they've done recently is they've bought shares, pretty decent stakes in various Japanese trading houses. And these are very large companies in Japan that do all kinds of trading. They trade, they import, export, they work with um, commodities and resources. Okay, and uh, you know he took a he, Berkshire was able to take out a very low interest rate yen loan and buy like something like I think the terms were somewhere between a tenth of one percent and up to like a half a percent. And the dividend yields on these stocks are actually more than the interest that they're paying for the loans to buy the stock. So, you, you know, what you have to say about Buffett is not only, he's just a great businessman, and he gets it, right? I mean, that's not something that you and I would have available to us. We couldn't go to a Japanese bank, borrow big-time money like that, and then go buy shares on the Tokyo Stock Exchange with dividend yields higher than the interest we're paying for the loan in Japanese currency. I just think it's a phenomenal type trade. But anyways, what I'm trying to get to is is people are already doing things to set themselves up for this. Okay? These are long-term ideas. They are shifts in nature. We're not buying insurance companies here. We're not buying, you know, more Apple stock. We're buying things that are going to benefit if we have more money creation and we have inflation. Okay? So having said that, uh, let's talk about another Buffett indicator uh, this is going to kind of segue into one of the main things I want to talk to in this video. Here is the Buffett indicator. Basically, it's the you know total debt um, debt to GDP uh, or total market cap. Sorry, market ca cap to GDP of the stock market. I'm sorry. And uh, as you can see, we're up to well, at least as far as this chart goes back, which is before 1980. We're at the highest level we've ever been at, okay? And you can see that back in 2000 during the tech bubble, we were less than 150%. At 2008, at the housing bubble, we were just slightly over 100. We're like almost two times that now. We This thing has just shot up straight up, as you can see. You can't really see the edge of the chart. But suffice to say, this is why Buffett is buying, um, I think, overseas, he's buying gold, he's buying hard assets, because I think, you know, because of passive investing, because of the money printing, because of a lot of things, the recent upsurge in the stock market is really focused on just a few companies. And we've seen this before. Um, we've seen this in the, in the 20s, in the roaring 20s, when you had RCA stock and a few other stocks making, they were the, they were the majority of the market capitalization of the stock market. You saw it in the uh, 60s, 
the nifty 50 stocks and the conglomerates, Gerald Tazai and this kind of stuff. It was the same thing, overvaluation, concentrated in a few names. We saw the same thing in the tech bubble. Uh, you know, we could just go on and on and on. This is another example. So what I'm trying to tell you is, is that the U.S. stock market is extremely overvalued. But people will say, well, John, look at interest rates or look at this. Look, I'm not going to get into that. I'm not buying Google or Apple at a $2 trillion valuation. I'm just not going to do that. With, you know, Apple growing at, what, 6 or 7% a year, it's $2 trillion market cap. I mean, I guess it could go to $5 trillion. depends how much money gets printed, I guess, or how, mu how much of this mania takes hold. But, you know, in the last week or two, I mean, ha have we seen the market crack? I don't know. What we've seen, though, is that every week people put money in their 401k that goes into ETFs, and these ETFs don't look at valuation. These people that manage it, they're all set up. It's all passive. So $100 comes in, $100 goes into the stock market, regardless of the valuation. Same thing. When this thing turns around and people start taking money out, it's the same thing. It's going to be relentless selling. So I think that uh, right now it's working. At some point, it's not going to work. It, that's just the historical narrative. So what am I doing? People say, well, what should you do? I mean, if, you, if the stock market's overvalued in the United States or in a lot of other countries, what should you do? So, you know, why am I investing in emerging and frontier markets? Well, there's many reasons. And I think this is another opportunity that gets overlooked. You know, a lot of people in the United States, especially, and also in other countries, have what I call home country bias. They just w invest in their own country. I've actually had people, you know, even in the United States, they won't open an interactive broker's account and avail themselves of stocks in Australia or Canada, which are, you know, fa or fairly easy markets to trade in. They just don't have any interest. I've had one person tell me, aren't there enough companies worthwhile buying in the United States? Well, yeah, there's plenty of companies in the United States, but it's like, how much do you want to pay? It, I don't like overpaying for assets. And if you have the opportunity to open up your um, selection into areas where they're undervalued, you know, how you make big money doing this is you sell overvalued companies and you buy undervalued companies. So why am I attracted to emerging and frontier markets? Well, uh, you have a lot, you have slow or no growth in many developed countries. And that's because of other things that we'll talk about. One of the next, uh, the bullet point here is one of the main reasons there's too much debt in developed countries. There's too much debt and it's just going to get worse, as we've talked about before, because of why? Promises made, promises that can't be kept, unfunded liabilities. And this is not just in the United States, it's across the entire developed world, okay? The OECD countries, the considered developed countries. What's another reason? Negative demographics in developed countries. You know, we're not having enough children in these countries, okay? And so you have these Ponzi scheme, retirement schemes, and you have less children being born. That's why you're importing third world populations and workforces, because you don't create enough workers in your own country. You know, the demographics aren't just about numbers, it's about age. You know, when you're in your, you know, 20s or 30s, you're in the family forming stage. You're in the high spending. You're having children. You're buying houses. You're furnishing those houses. 
you're spending money on, you know, clothes and food and capital goods like washers and dryers, blah, blah, blah. You have more kids, you upgrade your house. When you get, when these people leave and you get older, you're not spending money on these things, okay? You're spending changes, okay? And that's another part of the demographics. Um, it's, uh, it, it's really a big effect that people don't look at. Um, overvaluation in many developed countries' equity markets. I mean, we just talked about the Buffett indicator being at an all-time high overvaluation. Now, this isn't a timing mechanism. This doesn't mean it's going to end next week. I mean, but <laughs> parabolic spikes don't work out, guys. We've seen, we've touched on that before. I mean, it's hard to see this, but it's almost straight up. That's not going to continue. So, um, why else do I like to invest overseas into emerging and frontier markets? Well, be, the U.S. is beginning to slip as a global hegemon. Um, and that's going to be a factor of its financial condition and the fact that it can't and won't be able to police the rest of the world. Now, I would argue that uh, throughout history, whoever has had the strongest military has typically been able to have the reserve currency, which imparts a great, tremendous advantage to the country that holds that. I would suggest to you that that is going to change uh, over the upcoming years. I don't think it'll happen in a year or two, but it's slowly going to happen. I mean, look around what's going on in this country, the political divide, the uh, inequity, the uh, class separation, the various regions of the country that are no longer compatible. I mean, what's holding this country together? I don't even know, okay? The things that hold countries together are commonalities that don't exist. I mean, we have people even of the same race that don't share the same political view. We have different racial issues. We have class issues. I mean, I don't even want to get into it. That's not a recipe for having cohesiveness and being able to deal with problems. Uh, it's a recipe for division and uh, breakdown. You know, another reason why I like emerging and frontier markets is because that's where the growth is, the real economic growth. You know, Willie Sutton was a bank robber during the Depression. And when they caught Mr. Sutton, they asked him, Willie, why do you rob bank? Why do you rob banks? And he answered very simply, that's where the money is. So it's the same for emerging and frontier markets. Why do I invest in emerging markets? Well, that's where the growth is. That's where the growth is going to be. And I can cite example after example after example. If you want to look at the Asian tiger story uh, back in the late 80s, early 90s, you know, Indonesia, Thailand, um, these places, South Korea, the, 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 what they called the Tiger Cubs, Vietnam, right? Um, uh, these, you, you know, you just go through these stages, okay? And there's, there's, that's where the growth is. And you can see, you know, these, they have nascent, nascent stock markets. They start out with very low valuations as the economy grows. Um, a lot of times you'll see the, the indicator as far as the total market cap of the stock market in a country uh, is sometimes, you know, 10 or 20 or 30 percent of the country's GDP. So you have tremendous ability to catch up, right? You also have uh, situations where the countries are not over levered. They don't, they don't have a lot of debt as, as compared to a lot of the Western countries. That gives them the ability to, to do things, gives them flexibility, you know, 
I just use Uzbekistan as an example. This is one of my favorite countries right now just because of the economic liberalization that's going on. You know, it's emerging from basically 20 years after the Soviet Union collapsed. Uh, the previous um, leader died about five or six years ago. The new leadership is liberalizing the economy. No, it's not Singapore. It's not a Jeffersonian democracy. It's a different place on earth. But we are seeing the economy grow, you know, greater, greater than 5% a year. They're already recovering from COVID. They had their little COVID shutdown. And things are happening. And, and here's what you're looking at, you know, historic overvaluations in the U.S. And you have, uh, for example, uh, uh, in Uzbekistan, you have uh, average trailing P.E. price to earnings ratio of 3.75 times, right? Less than four times earnings. You have uh, a price to book at, you know, three, three quarters uh, or, or 0.73 Okay, so you're buying, you're, you're, you know, you're getting things below book value. And I would, su I would suggest it's probably even cheaper than that. You know, the average, uh, this is for the Uzbekistan fund that I'm in, the portfolio dividend yield is 5.87%. So you're seeing a liberalizing of the economy, low debt to GDP, decent demographics in an area of the world that's growing, that's liberalizing, that's moving in the right direction. Okay. And that's just an example. What are some other places I like? Okay, well, I like a lot of the places in Central Asia. One of the things that I'm really stoked on is Africa. Now, you have to differentiate among the countries, but, uh, you know, I'm, I, I, I think it has tremendous opportunity over the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years. You know, somebody suggested that it's where Asia was in 1970. Now, people have a lot of bias against Africa. Uh, I'm not going to sit there and say why. It's a lot of negative press. I mean, hey, hey, the place has been a basket case, but there are shining lights there, and it's getting more liberalized. You know, the generations of, of younger people ha uh, have been educated, and they want a change. This one man, one vote, one time, you know, pop a leader like you had in a lot of these countries, that's kind of ending, Okay. And there's tremendous growth, tremendous opportunity available in that, con that entire continent, which hasn't even been fully explored or, or, exp or, or surveyed for mineral wealth, for example. So that's another place. Another place I like is the country of Georgia in the Caucasus. I mean, it, it just hits like the top 10 in like ease of doing business, low corruption, these different things. I mean, and with COVID, the valuations have been completely decimated in a lot of these places. And you can pick up assets for pennies on the dollar. You know, why, why, am I, why would I buy Apple or Google or, you know, or, or, or Facebook when I can get things for, you know, half of book or less? So that's what the opportunity is. And, you know, most people listening to this, they're not going to have any interest. They're not going to do it. Um, but I'm telling you, this is where the real opportunities are over the next decade. Tremendous amounts of wealth can be uh, gleaned if it, because this is, where the, this is where the action is going to be. All right, guys, uh, that's it for this week. Um, hope to be putting some more videos up. Just put up a video with uh, Uranium Insider Justin Hune talking about the uranium market. Had some great uh, discussion there. Uh, take a look at that when you get a chance. And uh, obviously, we'll be putting up more videos um, uh, in, the, in the next week. So we'll, until next time, uh, take it easy, and we'll talk to you when we do.